And so I think what we have to begin to look at is is what is the role of a city in creating the social environment for people and to help facilitate the areas of a city that can provide the places for people to meet and, and gather. Welcome to the Hospitality and Politics podcast that is now on video. I am your host, Andrew Ritchie of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. And today I am very happy because we have a very special guest, Mr. Jim Peters from the Responsible Hospitality Institute, or RHI, which is actually a nonprofit founded back in 1983 to assist communities in the planning and management of hospitality zones to create safe, vibrant, and economically prosperous places to socialize. That's the fancy way of basically saying Jim is the OG of nightlife. When you talk about nightlife mayors and managing nightlife, Jim goes way back and has really created an infrastructure and a movement for cities and people to talk about really focusing on managing your nightlife and understanding what it means, not only from an economic standpoint for cities, but also for the socialization of cities. And clearly, COVID-19 has devastated the nightlife industry, and there's just so many uncertainties about its future. Um, Right before uh, COVID really hit New York City, we were actually out in Seattle at one of his summits with people from around the globe talking about nightlife, talking about cities, how we should manage it. And Seattle, as you all know, was one of the first places in the U.S. that got hit with COVID cases. And here we are months later, still in the midst of this pandemic. And I'm happy to have Jim here. So welcome. Andrew, it's great to be with you, too. Uh, I respect everything that you're doing in New York. You certainly are, as well, a global leader, and you are defining the standards of what a hospitality alliance or hospitality association can do for its members. I I know of no other person or group that has been as effective and as comprehensive as you have in providing information. So it's a great honor to be with you. You're very kind. So this is a new format where we're having basically quick conversations with really interesting people. So one of those conversations that we need to have when it comes to nightlife and cities and how they plan and manage nightlife is right now in the midst of this pandemic, what kind of conversations should government leaders in cities be having with the industry about supporting both nightlife during the current crisis, but then the more long-term recovery of the nightlife? Well, I think what we've learned from uh, this whole pandemic uh, for people is the importance of the opportunity to meet with friends and family to, to, as we say, share food, drink, music, and dance. And it's that sociability that I think most people feel is the greatest loss uh, and that inability to, to connect with others. And so I think what we have to begin to look at is is what is uh, the the role of a city in creating the social environment for people and to help facilitate the areas of a city that can provide the places for people to meet and and gather. And what I think uh, uh, we've begun to see is with the expansion of outdoor dining and the taking over of sidewalks and taking over parking lanes and eventually, in some cases, taking over the street is the recognition that cities and urban centers in particular have not been designed for the type of socializing and the dense socializing that 
uh, people demand and that people seek. So I think the first thing cities have to do is take a step back and say, how can we create an infrastructure to support the density of people coming out? Because when you fail to do that, which is what we mostly dealt with up until this pandemic, is when you have a concentration of venues with large occupancy and they all have to uh, meet and, 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 and navigate narrow sidewalks, that's where you start getting the conflicts. That's where you start having the problems. And, and I think the first thing cities need to do is to say, how can we improve the infrastructure, physical infrastructure, for the density of people as these things move forward? The second is how to recognize that you have to manage a district and you have to manage the street as a venue. How do you incorporate uh, music and entertainment and dining into the street rather than having it just be a collection of individual venue, venues how do you how do you begin to think of it as a district as as kind of a social district and then and to facilitate the venues in that in that area to see themselves as part of a collective whole rather than a bunch of individual venues competing with each other because what makes urban hospitality different than suburban hospitality is is the continuum of experiences that we have. So in suburbia, you get in your car, you drive to the the shopping mall, and you go to the TGI Fridays, and you meet your friends, and you eat, and you drink, and you socialize, and you get in your cars, and you leave. In an urban environment, you get off of work, you meet your friends for a drink, you meet some other people who tell you about a new restaurant, you all go to the new restaurant, then you meet some other people, and they talk about a, a club that has a new band playing, and then you go listen to the music, and then you decide to go out and dance in some club with a new DJ, and then at the end, you stop and get some some uh, some late-night snacks, and you go home. It's that continuum of an experience that defines urban hospitality, and so the more we can begin to think about that continuum of social experiences, how do we nurture and develop that, that will be what the role of the city can be. Yeah, you know, there's something that you've said all the time. You said it for many years, and it's always stuck with me, is that, you know, cities need to plan, manage, and then finally, if needed, police their nightlife. And if you jump from basically having nightlife to policing it, you've already lost the battle. Um, And that's why offices like the Office of Nightlife, which we've established here in New York City, and I forget now how many offices of nightlife there are around the globe that you've really been a pioneer in advocating for all these years have been established. So, you know, we're generally talking to a New York City audience right now, although there's people from all over that listen. I think we have an idea of a lot of the good and really important work New York City's Office of Nightlife um, is doing in relationship to COVID. But what are you seeing from cities around the globe? Are there any effective policies that are being implemented to support nightlife venues, live music, and other types of social spaces that are helping them in the immediate crisis, but then also kind of planning out a little bit when cities start reopening and when nightlife hopefully starts coming back sooner than later? Well, I think you and the Hospitality Alliance have really been in the forefront of trying to make uh, positive things happen, whether it be through just educating people about the opportunity for the PPP loans or advocating Congress to change the the time frame in which the money has to be used. Uh, But you also have been instrumental as as, uh, working with insurance companies to look at business interruption insurance or looking at you know, foregoing fees, especially when you start adding outdoor dining to help 
streamline the application process to be able to have the outdoor dining. So I would say New York City and you and, 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 and Ariel have been really uh, in the forefront of defining how uh, to work with the nightlife venues. I think in other cities, I th- many of them are a challenge, and, and some of it has to do with just the inefficiency of which different governmental agencies interact with each other. And I think in some cases, as we've seen in, in Edmonton or San Francisco or, or Seattle or other cities where they recognize the interagency approach is ultimately going to be the better way to work with venues to help them to get through this crisis. Um, because now you have the whole added dimension of social distancing and who's going to be responsible for enforcing that. You know, clearly we would like consumers to be responsible for themselves, but as we know, it's become a very politicized issue. <clears throat> then you have the venues themselves that really are, are both trying to seek uh, the economic um, uh, stability that they need to sustain their businesses and patrons who may not necessarily want to you know, comply. And mostly it's because of that pent-up need for sociability. You know, how do you tell people to not hug each other, you know, when they haven't seen each other for three months? And, and who's going to be the one that intervenes with that when it happens? Mm-hmm. So we've seen, you know, a focus on security and security criteria that has to be added to the many other things that they have to do, whether it be over-service of alcohol or sexual harassment uh, in, in venues, the threat of active shooters or stabbings, uh, the acts of terrorism, all of these things that venues have a responsibility for, now you have to add this extra dimension of health. So there's no real clear guidelines from my perspective of any organized uh, way to help businesses. Uh, while they're given the information, they're not necessarily given the support that they need. And you have too quick of a response of enforcement and closure. So you have uh, the health department coming in and closing a venue down, or you have the fire department coming in and closing a place down. Or in some jurisdictions, the alcohol regulators come in and close a business down. And I think it, 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 was, it was Paul you know, Sears, who you work with, who once said, uh, cities have a way of organizing agencies to help to close a business down, but they don't necessarily work to get together to help a business succeed. And I think that's really the big gap that's happened all over the country that I've seen. In other countries, like in the UK, they have created interagency teams. They go into the venues. They they do an audit. They give feedback. They help the business to meet the standards before they open. Now I think what we're doing often is just saying, here's the printed guidelines that the government has issued. You figure out how you're going to do it. And there's no consistency. So the consumers don't really know when they go out whether one venue is going to be better managed than another because there's no real uh, guidelines that, that help to distinguish that. And more importantly, I think we have to begin to think again as a district. How do we determine among all the venues in the district that they will voluntarily agree to certain standards and set a kind of a seal of approval so that if I go out in a certain area of New York or or Seattle or San Francisco, if I go from venue to venue, I don't have to really worry or determine if I go from one space to the other that I might be exposed to greater risk, that the businesses in that area have all agreed to a certain level of compliance and standards that they not only amongst themselves have set, 
but they've worked in collaboration with the agencies to help set those standards. And I really haven't seen a lot of that, in my experience, happening to any great extent. Yeah, well, listen, I think that's similar to what I've been seeing in a lot of places as well. There is such a focus on public health threat that some of the economic issues came up you know, afterwards. And these businesses are small businesses, and they are just trying to do everything that they can do to survive. And there's really even the distinction between the restaurants that can now do outdoor dining, but then when you look at nightlifes like clubs and where people go to dance and live music and even comedy clubs, um, you know, this is where people, as you said, come together to socialize, but now they're being told to be socially distant. So it's really a contradiction in what people do in nightlife. And I think until there's a vaccine, it's going to be tough to tell exactly what the future of nightlife holds. I've seen, and I'm sure you have too, you know, social distance raves and these other types of really creative events, which, you know, of course, nightlife people are very creative, so we're going to see them. But as a business model, especially across the industry, I don't think they're financially feasible, particularly in high commercial rent cities like New York. So places where nightlife bars, nightclubs, music venues. Um, we don't know when they're going to open, but if you had some sort of crystal ball and based on your experience, what do you think the next few years uh, hold for the nightlife industry? Is there going to just be nightlife venues completely shut down? Are we going to see some sort of new evolution in what it means to go out to nightlife? Um what, what does the future hold over the next couple of years? Well, again, I think it depends upon where you are in the world. I think if you're in New Zealand uh, or in Germany or other uh, countries that have really worked to contain the spread of the virus, uh, there's a lot of great opportunities for the venues to open and operate. But here in this country, I think it's going to be a long time before you start seeing that happen, mostly because we failed as a country to you know, contain the virus. And and, and, um, and now you have the reports coming out by the scientists that talk about the, uh, the spread of the virus, not only from the direct conversations that we have with people, but the little particles that remain in the air. You know, so the whole indoor experience, uh, particularly with density of people, I think is not going to happen in any significant ways for any time soon. And if it does, it's going to have flare-ups and, 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 and pushbacks like you've seen in Texas and Florida and Arizona, you know? I mean, just how many times can a venue get permission to open and recruit back their staff and have people working and work with customers and do the testings and the uh, personal equipment and, and, inv- and get the food in the, in the inventory that you need in, in anticipation that you're going to be opening, right? I mean, you... You've been closed for three months. You open up a restaurant, even to have limited dining indoors as well as outdoor seating, and then you're told you can't be open anymore. You know, now what do you do with all the food and all the alcohol that you bought? You know, how many times can you tell your employees, well, we don't know how long we're going to be closed, but I hope you're going to be around when we need you again. So I, I think it's going to be. It's going to be fits and starts, uh, but the the big test will be in the fall. Uh, when people can no longer be outside in any meaningful way uh, through most of the country that you'll begin to see, is it a viable option until there's a vaccine or until there's some way to 
like you know the president is saying, except the fact that people are going to get sick and some people are going to die. Let's just go out and live our lives, you know. So, so that's the alternative way of moving forward. Yeah, and that's a boy a tough, a tough one. Well, listen, I promise because we definitely want to get you in for a more long term, long form conversation about nightlife both during COVID, pre-COVID, and what lays, uh, lies ahead for us. But before we uh, finish this up, any parting words from uh, your years of nightlife experience? I, I, th- I, th- I think that we have to recognize that the opportunity for people to socialize is not going to go away and that uh, the industry is always very creative in how to make that happen. I believe that that inevitably there will be those that survive and those that don't, and it's a real tragedy. But uh, I think that there'll be a regeneration of what it means to uh, have places for people to meet and gather and to socialize, and and we'll begin to see leaders uh, emerging that have adapted to the the challenges and actually demonstrate innovation in ways that we can't even anticipate now. Well, Jim Peters, the Responsible Hospitality Institute, we all owe you an enormous amount of gratitude and thanks for all the work you've been doing for so many years as it comes to nightlife. And this is probably, if not, well, I have to say, probably is the most challenging thing our nightlife community has ever faced. Um, And like you said, you know, there's going to be loss, but we need to do everything we possibly can do to support business owners throughout this crisis. And hopefully when we come back, We'll have learned some things and we can build a more resilient nightlife industry for everyone that still may have a business or that's going to be opening a business because you are so spot on when you talk about really planning and managing nightlife. And perhaps if we were doing that a little bit better around the globe, then our nightlife businesses would be standing a little bit better of a chance of survival in today's world. But with that said, Jim, I want to thank you so much. And we will definitely be talking very soon. All right. Thank you, Andrew. I'd like to give a big thank you to our guests for coming in. I want to thank everyone for listening to Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Please rate, review, share this show with anyone you think that would like it. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at the NYC Alliance. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn, New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey, and I'm at Twitter at Andrew Ridgey and Instagram, Political Foodie NYC. Join our movement, support the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Find us, the NYC Alliance.org. We'll talk to you next time.